Would you bow your head, please? I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence cometh my help. My help comes from you, O Lord. You made heaven and earth, and you will not allow my foot to slip because you who hold me tightly and, and, and keep me in the palm of your hand, you never slumber. You, the one who keeps Israel, will never slumber nor sleep. So thank you, Lord, that you are our keeper. You are our shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite us by day nor the moon by night. For you protect us from all evil. You keep, you guard our very soul, our coming in, our going out. And Father, you do this from this time forth and forevermore. May we be, Father, in this moment attentive to you and the way your Holy Spirit wants to transform us, conform us more into the image of, of Jesus. May this time as we open up your word be a holy and reverent time as we um, seek to understand a little bit more about who you are and what you have accomplished in our behalf. And so we present ourselves to you and look forward to what you're going to do in our life through the living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Dr. Hugh Moorhead taught philosophy at Northeastern Illinois University uh, for uh, many years. And a number of years ago, he uh, sent letters out to 250 people that he had regarded as some of the top philosophers and thinkers of uh, the end of the 20th century. And he asked them a question. What is the meaning of life? And then he compiled their responses in a book that he entitled The Meaning of Life According to Our Century's Greatest Writers and Thinkers. Now, interestingly, those who contributed to the book, these great philosophers and thinkers of our day, admitted that, well, many of them had just guessed at an answer to that question, what is the meaning of life? Others admitted they just made something up. Others honestly said they had no clue. And then there were some who wrote Dr. Moorhead back and said, if you come to a conclusion about the meaning of life, please let us know, for we desperately would like to know. It's a question that has plagued mankind for millennia. William Lane Craig, the great thinker, apologist, teacher, he um, recounts the 17th century philosopher um, Blaise Pascal, quoting from Pascal's work, Pensees. He talks about um, how this brilliant physicist and mathematician was putting himself in his writing, Pensees, in a in the, the shoes of the, the typical man of the 17th century. And 
Pascal wrote these words about the typical thinking of a man 400 years ago. He summed it up by saying, I know not who put me into this world, nor what the world is, nor what I myself am. I am in terrible ignorance of everything. I, I know not what my body is, or my senses, nor my soul, nor even that part of me which thinks what I say, which reflects upon itself, as well as all external things, and has no more knowledge of itself than of them. I, am, I see the terrifying immensity of the universe which surrounds me. And I find myself tied to just one little corner of this vast expanse without knowing why I'm put in this place rather than some other, nor why the short time which is given to me to live is assigned to me at this point rather than at some other of the whole eternity which is set before me, which shall come after me. On all sides, I see nothing but infinity in which I am just a mere atom a passing shadow which endures only for an instant and then returns no more. All I know is I'm going to die. But what I understand least of all is this very death that I can't escape. Such is my condition, full of weakness and uncertainty. Such is the condition of man throughout the centuries of time. Weakness and uncertainty. What is the meaning of it all? It's kind of what was reflected by the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, who put it this way, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. The NIV translates it as meaningless, meaningless, absurd, meaningless. All it is is chasing the wind. We're studying the book of Isaiah this year, and I'll guarantee you on into the next year. We're studying the book of Isaiah, but this morning, by way of introduction, I just want to draw our attention to a few passages, the first one being the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, you don't have to turn there. You, I think, probably know pretty much the story, the account, Genesis, God creates perfect world. Everything he said was, he created was very good, and then sin enters. Sin enters and destroys God's perfect creation. Everything that God said was good gets cursed and God comes and pronounces that curse, that curse when he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Pain, toil, curse. A perfect creation brimming with life, a perfect creation that God said he had breathed life into, that he created perfectly, now marked by death, destruction, pain, futility. We go on to chapter 4, and, and Eve gives birth to the first son, Cain, and God had promised her a few verses earlier that someone from the seed of the woman would come and be the victor one day, and she gives birth to her firstborn, Cain. 
Cain is a name that means I have acquired. I have acquired. With joy, she holds that little baby. This is the one. I've acquired a child, the Lord, she says in chapter 4, verse 1. And then in the very next verse, we, we have another baby that's born. His name is Abel. The Hebrew word Abel or Avel is a word that means breath, vapor, vacuous, empty, meaningless, futile. Uh, maybe that's a typical response of moms in your second child, but something happened between those verses of the giving of Cain and of a all hope with Cain seems to be dashed holding meaninglessness in your arms. And as, of course, we know the story, Cain kills, murders Abel. The word Abel, Avel, is the very same word that's used 38 times in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, it's all emptiness. It's the same word, Abel, Avel. Second passage I want us to consider is uh, Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we read, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul is drawing upon, I think, his observations of Genesis chapter 3. Sin, the corrupting power of sin. Creation was subjected to futility. All of creation was made for something else. When God created his perfect world, he breathed life into it. It was the work of his hands. It was created to experience life, fullness, completeness, all that God had intended, the very presence and being of God surging through everything that he had created. It was very good. And then sin, the great disruptor, destroyer, and it's meaningless, it's futility, it's Havel, Abel. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe, when the four children enter that land of Narnia, they enter a land that's plagued by perpetual winter because the white witch has cursed it. Perpetual winter. Until Aslan the lion dies and then is raised to life, and all of a sudden the ice and snow begins to melt and the trees begin to bud. Life begins to happen. Until then, perpetual winter. We are living in a world of perpetual winter because of the fall, because of sin. Paul said in verse 21 there, creation is enslaved to corruption. The bondage of decay. Scientists call it the second law of thermodynamics. Here's a third passage. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, 
that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Paul is giving a picture of fallen humanity, of fallen man. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. The impact of sin on mankind, the fallenness of man, and the word that is used to describe it is futility, meaninglessness. So not only is creation itself experiencing death and futility, but the inhabitants of this created world were born into sin, the Bible says, to futility, to emptiness, to a meaningless existence because of sin. Now, the point of these three passages is that every aspect of God's once good creation, brimming with life, with all the potential that God had designed for it, is now in death, in perpetual winter, in futility. It's under the curse because of sin. So death reigns. There is the absurdity of meaninglessness of a world in sin. You can't make sense of it. Hope and joy and meaning are elusive. It's chasing the wind. Vanity of vanities, all is meaningless absurdity. Now, let's go to the book of Isaiah. We've been studying the book of Isaiah, and last week we were in chapter 24. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. If you were here last week, um, we talked about how Isaiah 24, Isaiah, this incredibly gifted writer under divine inspiration, his ability to use words and phrases and concepts and, and poetry and various genres of literature that come together in this marvelous book of Isaiah. In chapter 24, he's writing something of prophetic future apocalyptic in nature. It's the section, chapters 24 through 27, is called Isaiah's Apocalypse. And chapter 24, we see this emphasized, like in verse 1, behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its service, scatters its inhabitants. And Isaiah is focusing on the future. It's like he's pulling down that screen and he's showing a video of, of, of what's going to take place. Behold, look, what will happen? Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. And last week we saw how this, um, under divine inspiration, connects uh, and com uh, compares so wonderfully to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Isaiah's writing about something that John saw in his revelation the end of the age where God's outpouring of judgment upon this earth, where God finally says, enough. And worldwide destruction in this great time of tribulation that Jesus said in Matthew 24, the likes of which the world has never seen before and will never see afterwards. 
judgment is coming. And why? Verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, mankind, who have what? Transgressed the laws, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Turned from God, rebelled, put their fist in the face of a holy God, their creator, as shown as the serpent came to Eve, don't you want to be like God? God's holding out on you, take of the fruit, and you will be like you don't need God anymore. You can live dependent, uh, independently, you can live autonomously. Oh, and she took of the fruit, gave it her husband. Sin entered, and with it, man's uh, nature to want to live independent of God. He rejects, he rebels, he violates, he breaks the laws, the eternal covenant of God. And verse 10 is a phrase that kind of summarizes it all. Isaiah calls it the city of chaos, or the King James says the city of confusion is broken down, and every house is shut up so that none may enter. The city of chaos. And I want to just dwell. We passed over this quickly last week. I want to dwell on it a little bit today. It's a, it's a concept that not only describes the result of God's judgment, as this is a futuristic, apocalyptic look, but I think it's a phrase that also describes the reason, the reason for coming judgment. It's a city of chaos. And when he speaks of Isaiah, as he writes about this city of chaos, of confusion, he's using that concept of city in a broad perspective of the city of mankind. It's a world global perspective. We live in the city, this world, and it's a city of chaos. It's a city of meaninglessness. Now, this word for chaos or confusion is used only a few times in the Old Testament. But the very first time it's used is the second verse of the Bible in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. And verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew word is the word tohu, formless without shape. The next word, by the way, in verse 2 of Genesis is bohu, tohu, bohu, formless, void, emptiness. And then God creates the six days. He fills the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the, the blob of nothingness, and He shapes it, and He forms it, and He fashions it into something that is brimming with life that is very good until sin enters. And so the result of man living autonomously, separated from God because of sin, separated from the one in whose image man has been created to experience life and abundance of life, the result of man living independent of God is emptiness. It's tohu. It's meaninglessness. A vacuous emptiness, unformed 
void. When God created the world, he set things up to run in a way that's according to his design, his plan, and experience life. And so to live independently of God means we go back to Genesis 1, verse 2. Set aside God, put aside God, we go back to verse 2. Tohu, bohu, to emptiness, to formlessness, to no direction, to meaninglessness. Should be no surprise. God's the creator. He's writing the rules. And to depart from him, chaos, confusion, emptiness, meaningless. When God's laws are broken and his statutes are forgotten, our activities, our life, our societies, our, our existence is chasing the wind. This is from God's perspective. And so when everything in life then is done for selfish gain, independent of God, mankind lives, what's best for me? What's going to be best for me? The end is me, what's best for me, with no thought of God. It's like running to catch the wind. Modern man is living, as was ancient man, in the meaningless city, in the city of chaos and confusion. So, meaningless man says, I'll be able to make sense out of life. I'll I'll be able to find true happiness if I just get better educated. If we could just educate people better, then we'll, we'll, we'll make sense out of life. Meaningless man living in the meaningless city says, I'm able to make sense out of life and gain lasting joy if I just had more wealth, if I just owned a few more things, or I'll be able to make sense out of life and experience true commitment or contentment, find fulfillment in life if I just had more toys. After all, the one with the most toys at the end wins, right? It's all chasing the wind. And so what Isaiah is telling us here, even though it's an apocalyptic, a futuristic look, a prophetic look at the end of the world, it's telling us what that world looks like at that end and what it has always looked like since the beginning because of sin. It is tohu, it's chaotic emptiness, it's meaningless. It's Abel, Havel, it's futility, it's vacuous nothingness. We are living in the city of meaningless, in a world of futility. Remember what Isaiah said back in, we looked at it months ago, chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's just the world in which we're living in. Confusion. Is that not true when you watch the news and read the papers? And Do you ever walk away from watching news and stuff like saying, this is a crazy world. This is a non... Did you read this? Did you hear that? This is stupidity. 
what is going on with our world? Nothing that hasn't gone on since Genesis 3. Because we live in a city of meaninglessness. That's what sin does. It's meaningless absurdity. That's our world because of sin. And people call evil good and good evil. That is chaotic confusion. It's tohu. And so as Francis Schaeffer asked some 35 years ago, how then shall we live? As people of God, as followers of of Jesus Christ, as people living in the city of meaninglessness, how do we live meaningful lives? How does it work? Well, Isaiah, I think, has a very simple answer to that. Go over to chapter 26, verse 3. Chapter 26, verse 3. And he writes, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. I remember memorizing this verse as a little kid from the King James. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Notice the emphasis in this verse 3. It really is on God. God will keep him in perfect peace. He's going to bring it about. And that's why it's entirely possible to live in the city of chaos and confusion and meaninglessness full of life, full of meaning and purpose. Because God can make that happen. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace. He will bring it about. He is able to perform it. He is able to take the absurdity of our life and make sense out of it. And notice the verse says, He will keep us in perfect peace. The original Hebrew, it's the word shalom, peace, shalom, and it's used twice. The word is, is put back to back. He will keep us in shalom, shalom. The sense of of wholeness, of completeness, of, of inner quietness of spirit, of confident repose because of God. He keeps us in perfect, genuine, complete. That's the idea that Isaiah is trying to communicate. It is perfect. It's complete. Shalom, shalom. I heard the story about a a painting contest. It was promoted by someone who asked artists to paint a picture that would capture the idea of peace. The best. And then they would be given a prize, and people submitted their, their paintings. There would be scenes of, of uh, a quiet pastoral scenes probably somewhere in Nebraska. <laughs> or there was these quiet these scenes painted of, 
of, of, of a water scene and the, and the image of trees, you know, showing up in the, in the water and the, just this quiet scene of peace. But the, the painting that was won, that won the award, a painting by Jack Dawson, was a painting of a, of a storm, of lightning flashes, waters crashing over rocks, and it shocked people. Why would this painting win the prize? Because if you looked real closely at the painting, there amidst the storm it was a bird with her little chicks under her wing. There in the midst of, of, the, of, of the crashing waves, of the violent storm, was peace. He won the prize, a true portrayal of peace, the safe place in the storm. Isaiah is telling us that if we are trying to find peace, wholeness, inner contentment, if we're trying to make sense out of life, it's impossible. It's impossible because we live in a city of chaos, of ruin, of utter confusion, of meaninglessness. It can't happen. We'll be sorely disappointed because true and lasting peace can only be found in a relationship with our Creator. But there's one condition for that peace. Thou wilt keep Him. He will do it. Thou wilt keep Him in shalom, shalom, perfect, undisturbed, complete peace. Here's the condition whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in him. A mind that is steadfast on the Lord. The, the word means to, to lean upon, to rest upon, to depend upon. Isaiah is talking about a frame of mind, a way of thinking, a way of orienting our life around our thoughts, our pattern of thinking. It is to be steadfast, unwavering, undeviating on God. Total dependency. This is a person who is so confident in who God is. He's so convinced of the trustworthiness of God that he unwaveringly trusts in him because it makes no sense to do anything else. So convinced of who God is, it would be senseless, meaningless, an absurdity not to trust it in the rock of the ages. Because there is an absolute conviction that all other ground is sinking sand. So, folks, we are living in a world of meaninglessness. Chaotic, confusing world. And even as followers of God, even we as God's people can try to find a sense of, of coherence and make sense out of life through, through political maneuverings or, or trying to find sense and meaning and shalom through financial stability or through good health and or relational solace uh, um, through our work, through our leisure. 
And, and there's nothing wrong with these things. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with work and, and leisure and, 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 you know, having an impressive retirement portfolio. And, but what Isaiah is saying, I think, in chapter 24, and what the Bible so often says, living in a fallen world of sin provides no guarantees, absolutely none. And I think it's very typical. I do it. I fall, you know, fall into the trap. Okay, if I do A, B, and C, well, then obviously I'll get D, right? I mean, I, I'm living for you. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, you know, doing this. I helped a little lady across the street. I'm doing these things. And, and therefore, you know, these, this package of stuff should, should drop in my lap because that's how an ordered non-chaotic world works, right? One plus one plus one is three. If I do this, this, and this, it always equals this. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't. And sickness happens, or a financial crash, or, or a loved one is taken from us, ripped from us way too soon. And, it, and we experience chaos, confusion, it's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, we're God's people, right? And we forget that we're living in the city of Tohu, of utter Havel, of futility. That's the realm in which we exist. Let's not be surprised when we go through life and bad things happen all the time to good people. Because it's a city of chaos, a world disrupted, corrupted by sin. And we can get upset and we put our fist again in the face of God. We get angry. Why did this happen? What kind of a God would allow this to happen? Well, wait a minute. Don't put that on God. We're living in the city of chaos. What, what, what do we expect? What do we expect? So don't trust this world. Don't trust the equation that if you do A, B, and C, you'll get D. Don't trust in those things. There's only one place that true, genuine peace and security and joy and hope and meaningful existence is found, and it's a relationship with the Almighty God. Period. And God has creative ways to strip that other type of thinking from us through pain and suffering and sorrows and lovingly to get our attention to say, no, it's not about that. It's always chaotic and, and, and meaningless. It's in me, intimate relationship and fellowship with me. And so how do we keep our minds stayed on him? Thou will keep him in perfect peace. The steadfast of mind he will keep in perfect peace. How, how do we have a steadfast, confident trust in him? How do we live a meaningful life in the meaningless city? Let me mention just a couple of things. First of all, it, I think it comes down to being convinced of what I just said, that it's not about externals. It's not about making sure the arrangement of our circumstances and externals 
go well for me so that now, therefore, I will have shalom, shalom. It's always about internal realities. It's always about not what I have or what's happening to me. It's always about who has me, who I am, how I've been identified by Almighty God, viewed by Him. It starts with being convinced that meaning and purpose is not based on the externals, but on internal realities. Second of all, knowing God, therefore, is the most important defining thing about us. And that comes through knowing who God is, through His Word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I've so many times quoted that. You know, I've been, it's coming close to 40 years of pastoral ministry. You can kind of sum up or I could sum up the, the central message. It, it's, it's kind of like that old A.W. Tozer quote when he said, the, the most important defining thing about us is who we believe God to be. Who God is is the most defining thing about us. It determines the entire course of our life. The most important thing about each of us right now is your view of Almighty God. It's, it's who you view him to be. And the only way we find that and shape that is through his word. And so we have to be convinced that it's not in the externals, it's the internal reality of who I am, and it's in knowing God, pursuing him. Thirdly, and I've said this many times, it's understanding we need to be thinking Christians. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, what? Whose mind we don't check our brains at the door when we come in to church or to a Bible study or to his word or in his presence. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, is steadfastly focused on him. We need to be thinking Christians. And, that, and here's where discipline comes in. Holy Spirit-empowered effort to keep our minds off the emptiness, the vacuousness of the world on, and onto him and him alone. I mean, good night. Think, well, I don't know what happened to your way. Actually, it's been kind of a quiet summer for me. Uh, having said that, watch what happens this week. But I don't know what's been going on for you. But there's so many things that can all of a sudden just, right, can take our hearts, our minds, our passion, our focus, and all, all of a sudden it's over here. It might be some past sins that have never, we just have never had peace over, some past trauma that's been done to you. Maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe it's some, again, financial insecurity you're going through, or some, maybe you're just gripped by the, and, and there's nothing wrong to being gripped with sorrow at the national moral decline that we're seeing, but it can become all-consuming, or international um, messes that are taking place in the world. So many things can come and all of a sudden grab our minds from steadfastly focused on who God is. And so we need to be thinking Christians. And finally, let me just mention praying Christians because the way we stay thinking Christians is conversations with God. It's just going through life and saying, in the moment of the day, Lord Jesus, help me to keep my mind focused on you. It's a conversation with God. We're, we're, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we're supposed to have this living, viable, 
exciting, passionate relationship with the God who created us. That's, that's what he, he, he delivered us from, sin, so that he could have a relationship with us. And we go through our day saying, Lord Jesus, you know, we hear something, some news, and it can be troubling, but Lord, I want to experience your perfect peace in the midst of the storm. And it doesn't mean I'm going to be happy and giddy and all that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about inner wellness, quiet contentment, knowing God is God. And so we talk to him during the day. Lord Jesus, keep my mind upon you. You see, trust in the Lord is nurturing a fellowship. It's nurturing it a fellowship of intimacy with the living God. Intimacy with the living God. Blaise Pascal, who I mentioned earlier, once said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. I have no doubt that there might be people here today in this very room who might be trying to fill the hole in the soul with everything else, and it's chasing the wind. It's meaningless. And even born-again Christians, we can chase after religiosity, we can pursue that Bible study and try to grab that newest Christian book or we can go pursue this and God is shouting at us oh, it, I'm up here, it's me because all other ground is sinking sand he's the only rock to build our life on how do you live a meaningful life in the city of meaningless in constant fellowship and dependence upon him and that must be nurtured every day every day and so trust in the Lord forever Isaiah said for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock living in the city of meaninglessness that makes perfectly good sense Let's pray. And so, God, um, encourage our hearts. Draw us, Father. Draw us into that sweetness of fellowship with you. Do what, whatever it needs to be done in a creative way to remind us so often it's well with you. Shalom, shalom as your mind has stayed on me. Even this week, Father, help us to, to be people of, of, of dependent, um, of just childlike faith. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.